It's a hard act to follow, isn't it? Good morning. I can tell by that applause that you feel the same way I do about um, Joanna reciting James, the book of James, or the letter. Um, It's one thing to memorize scripture, the many hours it takes, the review, the recital, and there's great profit in that spiritually because you have the word of God in your heart. And you can call it to mind at a moment's need, but it's another thing completely to stand in front of an audience um, and have your heart beating, perhaps perspiring in your palms of your hands. And those thoughts that were so familiar just flee sometimes. And it's hard to regain your composure. I was very uh, proud to see her continue on and persevere to the end. That is no easy task. And the applaud that the family here at Calvary gave means that you recognize that. My hat's off to her. What an example, Joanna. Praise the Lord. Genesis chapter 26. There's a verse that Joanna shared. Before we start, I want everybody to stand up. Stretch your legs. Stretch your arms. Shake the hand of the one next to you. Say hello. Okay, before you sit down, before you sit down, take a deep breath, lots of oxygen in your brain. Now you can sit down again. Thank you. Sometimes I need that in the morning. I thought maybe you might. She shared a verse that's different in the New American Standard. It's James 1.12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. The word trial is in the New American Standard. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. The crown of life. We talk about a crown being a prize. I was really impressed. I was really impressed with um, Michael Phelps. I'm sure if you haven't heard of him, you have now. Broke Mark Spitz' record of seven gold medals with an eighth. And of course, he couldn't have done that without team, a team, you know, because one of them was a 400 medley relay. And so he relied on teammates really as well as his own perseverance through that. But I, I sort of felt the emotion that must have been going through his heart as he received those medals and that award. And uh, he had done, done one thing he hadn't done during the Olympics. They said he was brought to tears. And of course, being a Christian and knowing the word of God, my mind goes to that coming day when we'll be before the Lord and he will give that crown to those that love his appearing. That'll be a wonderful day filled with emotion. I'm hoping you're looking forward to it like I am. Um, persevere under trial. Trial. We're going to see a trial here in the life of Isaac. And we're going to think about trials. We're going to think about how he responded to trials. The example that he had in his father. And of course, where we stand and what, how we would fare in a similar trial in the example that we leave behind. Genesis chapter 26, verse 1. There was a famine in the land beside the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. 
Then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants I give all these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. And it will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac dwelled in Gerar. And the men of the place asked about his wife, and he said, She is my sister. For he was afraid to say, She is my wife. Because he thought, Lest the men of the place kill me for Rebekah, because she is beautiful to behold. Now it came to pass, when he had been there a long time, that Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, looked through a window and saw... And there was Isaac, showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Quite obviously, she is your wife. So how could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I said, lest I die on account of her. And Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt on us. So Abimelech charged all his people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Then Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. The man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous, for he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants, so the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped up all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, and they had filled them with the earth. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Then Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water, which they had dug in the days of Abraham his father, for the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. He called them by the names which his father had called them. Also Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of running water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Isaac, because they quarreled with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one also. So he called its name Sitna, and he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, because he said, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Then he went up from there to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear For I am with you, I will bless you, and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there, and called on the name of the Lord, and he pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahazath, one of his friends, and Phicol, the commander of his army. And Isaac said to to them, Why have you come to meet me since you hate me, and have sent me away from you? But they said, We have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. So we said, let there now be an oath between us and between you and us. And let us make a covenant with you that you will do to to us no harm since we have not touched you. And since we have done nothing to you but good and have sent you away in peace, you are now blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast and they ate and drank. Then they arose early in the morning and swore an oath with one another. And Isaac sent them away and they departed from him. It came to pass the same day that Isaac's servants came and told him about the well which they had dug and said to him, We have found water. 
So he called, so he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. A trial. We go back to verse 1. A trial. Trials which meet God's people in their course are very much uh, alike. They ever tend to make manifest how far the heart has found its all in all in God. We find Isaac in the land and there was a famine. There was the trial, the famine. And there's what he needed to respond to. His father also went through a similar trial. And there's a link here. Because it says, besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. That famine in the land, uh, the result was that, was that Abraham went down to Egypt. There was another time that he came before Abimelech and lied about his wife. So there were two times that he lied about his wife, Sarah. One to Pharaoh and one to Abimelech. But the famine sent him down to Egypt. And so here Isaac faces the same trial that his father faced. In view of the promises of God, what was he to do? What was he to do? I like what C.H. Massintosh says about Egypt and about Gerar. They present great temptations. Either turn out of the way or stop short of true possession or position as the servant of the true and loving God. Egypt is an expression of the world and its natural resources and independence of God. Gerar wasn't quite so far down as Egypt, but close enough to be within the range of dangerous influences. When we come across trials in our life, the question is, what do we do? What do we do? Abraham went all the way down to Egypt. And by every inference, it seems in the scriptures that Isaac was on the same path. And God stopped him short. Don't go down to Egypt. Why would God say that? Those weren't his plans. See, You remember that Abraham told his servant, don't you let Isaac go down to the land to get a wife. He stays here. You go find him a wife. You bring her back here. So it's very important for Isaac not to leave the promised land. And he didn't leave it this time. But he was gonna. And that really reveals a temptation for us when we go through trials. What is the temptation? No matter what trial you might be facing. The temptation is to go down to Egypt. The temptation is to resort to worldly methods, worldly resources, worldly strategies, worldly wisdom to get ourselves out of those trials. And I won't make those trials small. Some of them loom very large in our lives. But we must see that the temptation of the flesh, of the natural man, is to go down to Egypt, to find our solution in the way a person that doesn't know the Lord would find their solution. Go down to Egypt. So that's where Abraham went. And really, he was an example to Isaac. And we're going to talk about that later. We're all examples. And some of the examples that we leave to our posterity have drastic consequences for them. And we're going to talk about spiritual ramifications as well. So Isaac went down. Um, was he in the right place? Was he in the will of, the, will of God? He didn't go down to Egypt, but he was planning on going there. God stopped him short. And there's another temptation we have. Another tendency we have in the natural man. We might not, in seeking to resolve a trial that we're in, go all the way. 
into the world's way of doing things. But there's a tendency in the human nature to snuggle right up to that boundary as close as we can without crossing the line. Say, I'm saved. You know, this is a good financial decision. Um, I'm doing what is financially prudent or fiscally wise. Fiscally wise. Um, snuggling right up to the way the world deals with things rather than living in the center of the land, trusting the Lord. Now, look, a famine, you have to think, where was Isaac in his life? He had inherited great riches from his father. His father had herds and flocks and servants, and he inherited all that. The tendency we have is to think that our livelihood's at stake. Was his livelihood at stake? Was his life really on the line? Was he going to starve to death? I have never seen, ever seen those that belong to the Lord starve to death. Never heard of it. The Lord says he'll take care of his own and he's faithful to his promise. And so was Isaac's move really a move of survival? If so, we might understand it. But I don't think it was. You know what I think it was? I think what was at risk was his standard of living. You see, he had plenty of flocks and herds and oxen and goats and sheep. Did he have plenty to eat? I'd say, yeah. You see? But if he had a standard and he thought, well, you know, so many oxen aren't going to be able to eat. We're going to have to kill so many. Flocks going to be reduced. Hmm. Where can we go so that wouldn't happen? Hey, let's go down to Egypt. Sometimes we deliver, we, we, you know, God blesses us in life. But that's not the most important thing. The most important thing we're going to see later is the presence of God in our life. Sometimes we confuse the two. I started out when I came to know the Lord, I had hardly anything. I can remember one time in my life I was down to $200 and 15 boxes of books. Six months later, later I was married with a fully furnished two-bedroom apartment <laughs> because of what the Lord did. The Lord, the Lord can do anything. The question is, am I going to put my standard of living up front in importance? And I'm going to make decisions that might not be the way the world would, but I cozy up to the boundary to make decisions what the world influences to where I can keep my standard of living and not have to give that up, not have to have it diminish in any way. Once I start making those kind of decisions, I'm failing in the trial. And I'm leaving an example for my posterity. Not only my posterity, but those around me as well. The decisions I make, the way I live, what's important to me, what I'm not willing to do without in place of sweet fellowship with God speaks to all those around us. And they see more clearly than we think they see. And our children and grandchildren are watching. And most likely, they might follow in our footsteps like Isaac followed in Abraham's. God said, do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land which I shall tell you. He didn't say stay in the land right up to the border of Egypt. <laughs> I would take that as stay in the center of the land. Stay far away from influences that you would draw you away from me. Sojourn in the land and I will be with you and bless you. See, there's the important part of that verse. I will be with you. See, each Macintosh points out, true, the Lord said, dwell in this land but how often does the Lord give directions to his people morally suitable to the condition he knows them to be in? 
and calculated to arouse them to a true sense of that condition. Well, somebody might argue, well, God told me to dwell in the land. He said he was going to bless me, so I'm in the will of the Lord. Not necessarily true. We have example in Scripture that would direct us otherwise. He directed, God directed Moses to search out the land before going into the promised land. Remember that? And so they sent spies to spy out the land. Some of you might say, well, God directed us to do it, right? Well, no, because he took into consideration their moral condition. He knew where they were in their faith. He knew where they were in their relationship with him. And so he takes that into consideration when he gives direction to them. Do you think that was the right response, send spies into the land? If God told us he was going to give us the land, if God was going to deliver it into our hands, what need is there to send spies in? See, that would have been the spiritual way to respond. Lord, we don't need to send spies. We don't need to search it out. You said it was like this. You're going to give it to us. We're ready to go. And then the Lord might have said, great is your faith, like the Lord Jesus did. Those kinds of challenges are before us as well. We take a low path, and God meets us at the low place. And he directs us in the hope that it's going to arouse us to a need to walk the higher plane, the plane of faith. You remember Moses and Jethro. Jethro had an idea. You're not going to handle judging all these people by yourselves. You need to pick men that can help you out. Well, if Moses really um, would have answered the way we would answer after reading the scripture, knowing everything, how would you think he would have answered? The Lord wanted me to have help. He'd give me help. The Lord's sufficient to help me. The nation of Israel wanted a king, so God directed them to have a king. What was the better answer would have been? God, we have God. We don't need a king. All the other nations around us, they have a king. We don't need a king because we have God. He's the one who directs our steps. Okay, so we do see that God directs people according to the, uh, the condition that he knows that they're in. But he always wants to wake us up to our condition and call us to a higher plane. We see here that God did that um, for Isaac, and he promises to be with him. It says, it says that there was another temptation that came along when he was in the land. He was there for quite some time. Remember now his sons are with him. Because it says right before this chapter that Esau and Jacob were born to Rebekah. And remember the story where Esau traded away his birthright for a pot of lentil soup? Well, so they have to be at least young men at the time. He's old enough to go out hunting and come in, and Jacob's old enough to be cooking in the kitchen. So their boys are there, and so they're seeing all this. And so whatever he does is going to be an example to his kids because they're well aware of it. And he was afraid. So oftentimes fear leads us to make the wrong decision when we're tempted. And he remembered what his father had done. And guess what? It worked for him. He was blessed of God. He walked out of that lie with more possessions than he went into it with. And so, wow, if it worked for him, it should work for me. And so he lied. But in doing so, what did he do? You know, was he really loving his wife or was he more concerned with self-preservation? 
Was he trusting a God who was capable of taking care of him and his family? Was his God big or was his God small? Could he trust God or did he have to resort to his own ways and his own methods? Worldly methods, lying, deceit. One thing he didn't calculate and he didn't think about was how he followed his father's example. What about his children? He didn't take that into the equation. And he didn't know the grief that it would later bring him when he found his son to be deceitful. And what it caused grief, to the, how, what kind of grief it, it caused for the family. He was afraid. Fear. Fear. Fear is an occasion to trust God. It should never lead us in temptation to deny God. Okay, he had been a long time with King Amalek and then Amalek found him out. Sooner or later, our lies will be found out. Deceit will be found out. The truth will be exposed. Sooner or later. And in this case, it was found out by a king um, who didn't know the Lord. And yet, by all appearance, he was more righteous than the man that did know God. And he rebuked him. So Abimelech charged all the people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord had blessed him. And the man became rich and continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy. So it worked for him, right? He became rich and he became wealthy. Isn't that a picture of success? It is in the eyes of the world. But what good are all the riches that the world can offer if to accept them you have to walk far from God? I like, again, what C.H. McIntosh writes, If Isaac's position in Gerar was wrong, then why do we read in verse 12, If it was wrong for him being in drawer, why did God bless him so much with material possessions? Why do we read that in verse 12 if he shouldn't have been there? Because I'm waging the argument he shouldn't have been there. There was a famine in in the land, he should have trusted God. He shouldn't have etched his way toward Egypt with the intent of going to Egypt. He should have just hunkered down, trusted the Lord, and seen how the Lord would provide. Well, then why does it say that the Lord blessed him? We can never judge that a person's condition is right because of prosperous circumstances. There's a great difference between the Lord's presence and his blessing. Many have the latter without the former. And moreover, the heart is prone to mistake the one for the other. It's a great mistake. How many do we see surrounded by God's blessings who neither have nor wish for God's presence? Material possessions, wealth, is not necessarily an indication of God's blessing. And if it is, it's not necessarily an indication of God's presence. A man may, a man may uh, wax great and go forward and grow until he becomes very great, until he becomes very great and have possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and great stores of servants and all the while not have the full, unhindered joy of the Lord's presence with him. What good's all those riches if you're not enjoying the Lord's presence in your life? What good's a career? What's good? What good is real estate? What good is your own business? What good is all that the world can cast before you if you don't have the joy of the Lord's presence in your life? And this is good. There are things on account of which the Philistines might envy Isaac, whereas they never would have envied him on account of the Lord's presence. You have all those things, the world's going to envy you. 
Even other Christians might envy you because this is what they think. That person knows the Lord. I know the Lord. Wow, they have all those material possessions. How come I don't? That's envy. But those possessions aren't an indication necessarily of the joy of the Lord's presence in that person's life. That is something that the world is not going to envy. They might envy what you have, but they don't envy who you know, the Lord Jesus, because they don't know him and they reject him. But you're no greater testimony. I'm no greater testimony in this world than when that is most important to me, joy of the Lord's presence. And that is going to be demonstrated in my countenance. It's going to be demonstrated in my life. Who's in a better position, a person that has everyone, everything or the person that has nothing, but he's happy? People that have everything are rarely ever happy. The Lord's presence is so important. And so we look at the example of Abraham and we see the direction that Isaac took. It has, it has its effect. And now we see Isaac's decision and the method that he... Um, employed in the midst of a trial and his two sons are watching Esau and Jacob and they're old enough to understand what's going on and you can't make a lie up like that without the whole household knowing it and in one sense or another participating in it don't let the cat out of the bag and Isaac didn't know it at the time but it had its effect in Jacob's life Jacob was a deceiver. And as a result, dire consequences in not only his life, but the family's life. And Noad's going to cover that next week. I want us to think about ourselves as examples. Because it has its spiritual parallel. What kind of example are we to our children? We can't guarantee that our children will walk in our footsteps. But we can make sure that we don't leave bad examples. Perhaps in one season of our life we are better examples than others. Perhaps we've made decisions to snuggle up to the boundary. Perhaps our priorities are all mixed up or have been all mixed up. There's still time for repentance. There's still time to be a good example. But not unless we face our shortcomings. Face the things that we have placed before the Lord. There were times in our lives where we were a lot hotter spiritually than we are now, perhaps. Perhaps there was a standard that we held to earlier on in our Christian life that we've sort of wavered on, that we've found exception to, that we think because we have all those years of faithfulness in certain areas that now we can be a little less faithful. Now we can be a little more lax. The problem is is our children might not have been around when we had that faithfulness. They're around in our lax days, maybe in our retirement years. And that's the example they see. And they don't put two and two together. All they know, this is the example. I, I think of examples to, to me. Uh, I think of the McAllisters, faithful. Uh, and they're not the only ones, but... I think of Tuesday night prayer meetings. I see them there all the time. As I grew up in a Christian, as a, as a Christian, it was put before me that 
really, in a sense, my devotion, my love for the Lord is going to demonstrate itself in the way I live. And when I have a choice to be somewhere else or be with the Lord's people, that's because I want to be with the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean the Lord isn't with me wherever I am, but there's a special way in which the Lord is among his people. And that's why we see in the New Testament they devoted themselves to that, to the breaking of bread, to prayer, to fellowship, to, to the apostles' teaching or to doctrine. That was something they longed for. They ran from the regular activities to be a part of that. And in, in, a, in a very real sense, I show my love and devotion for the Lord that he's important to me when I place those first. And there's other ways in which show forth my devotion to the Lord. In many ways, the sacrifices I make or don't make tell the Lord how much I love him. And no sacrifice is too great to make for the one who offered himself up to pay for my sins. Now, I'm not coming before you to say that I've been faithful or I'm the greatest sacrificer here. I know I'm not. But I can't deny the truth that when I'm not, I'm unfaithful. When I'm not, I'm not being a good example to my family, to my children, or to the rest of you all. And when I'm not, um, I'll regret it. One day when I face him, and when I look in his eyes and his wounds, and I'll think, he deserved better. He deserved better. I'd just like to close with a story just that drives home the importance of being a good example, especially fathers. I knew this man. He was raised in a godly home, God-fearing father and mother, raised in the church, accepted the Lord, knew that the Lord died for him on the cross, that he might be forgiven. He was raised in the church. He became an elder. But at the same time, he had in him a real affection for prosperity. He had several businesses that he ran. He had a farm. And what he had was coveted by many people, unsafe people of the world. He ran import-export businesses, and everything that he was thinking of was uh, revolved around making a profit, increasing his wealth. But he also took part in the assembly. He was an elder, um, took part in the teaching, took part in the visitation. But you could tell, if you knew him, you could tell there was this attraction in his life that he couldn't shake. It was a part of him. And as his kids grew up, it was a part of their lives. And I can remember one, his one son that he drew into a deal with himself went bad. And this is a man that also had guns, believed in defending himself. He was a man's man kind of guy. And his son, he called in to make a, an exchange with money and he was going to get robbed. And so there was a wrestle with the gun and he killed one of his assault the person that was assaulting him that was trying to get the money and he got away from the other guys that were with him and then uh, see these people coveted they envied what he had and they wanted some of it and what drew him into it was the temptation to get more money in a not so honest way they came after him and they came through his gate and they shot his son as his son was running into the house, he fell into his mother's arms and he said, Mom, I think they shot me. And he died in his mother's arms. 
You see, he was following the example of his father. Although he wasn't, wasn't quite as fortunate as his father. We, especially the men of the household, are spiritual leaders in our family. We're supposed to think, put think first things first, and we have the best guide in the world to do it right here, the Word of God. And we could be bad examples in one area of our life or another. Abraham is a great man of faith, and there was just one little area in which he was weak. Isaac followed that same vein, and so did Jacob. And it had its consequences. You see, oftentimes our children, they won't fare the same way. We'll fare going through the same difficulties. And so we have to be the best possible examples. And I think that's what God's calling us to. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word, how faithful it is to record men of faith and even their weaknesses. And that we might see the consequences. We pray that you'd help us to see, Lord, where we stand with you, if we're putting anything before you. Lord, we know oftentimes trials are meant not to tell you anything, not to give you information, but to show us really where our heart lies, what things are important to us. We pray that what might be most important to us, Lord, is enjoying a sweet and close fellowship with you through the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that if any way we're being bad examples to those around us and especially to our children and the things we pursue, and oftentimes the things we neglect. We pray that you'd show that to us, that we might be pleasing to you and that we might be good examples. We pray and ask it in Jesus' name.